Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have David Swift. Uh, he's a historian and writer based in London who specializes on the history and contemporary politics of the British left, particularly in relation to race, class, gender, and popular culture. He has researched and taught at several universities in the UK and abroad. And his first book, A Left for Itself, was released by the radical publisher Zero Books in 2019. And his newest book, available now, is called The Identity Myth, Why We Need to Embrace Our Differences to Beat Inequality. Welcome, David. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. And then so to quote from David's book, David wrote, the slow disappearance of class from our discourse and our understanding of the world has fanned the flames of this gap between perceptions and reality. If you class all white straight men as the same, whether billionaires, politicians, or media moguls, then it is harder for poor white men to perceive their privilege. Mm -hmm. Further, it makes them more likely to identify with Tory toffs because they're constantly being told they're one and the same. But ultimately, any politics that relies upon the privileged seeing themselves as privileged or indeed the underprivileged seeing themselves as victims, it is bound to fail. One way to end the increasing dominance of the identity myths over our lives is a clear break with the political economy of the past four decades. So, David, I don't know how much you know about United States politics here, but we are sort of very ensconced in our identities. So if we're talking about, you know, the kind of, let's say, the right, you're thinking about it in terms of patriotism and nationalism, and I'm an American. And, you know, obviously, if you're going to the or to the kind of uh, less seedy parts of the country, then it's more sort of like I'm a white person, right? This is this is sort of what makes me proud. And then on the left, you have identities such as obviously I'm LGBTQ. Uh, let's say I'm a socialist, right? Um, uh, so for some people, I mean, not more so, this doesn't really happen much, but I'm a moderate. I mean, this does happen, but people aren't really um, kind of like, again, going back to that sort of sense of being intertwined. Those are not big parts of their identities, but they are. Um, but you kind of argue that these identities are in some way kind of counterproductive to what we're looking for in the kind of bigger picture of the world and what we're looking for in the long term. Um, so how would you sort of begin to talk to a person who's telling you like, hey, no, my identity is a part of who I am. And yeah, so what? I am a victim, right? That is something that happened to me. Why can't I sort of perceive myself in that way? And why can't I feel proud of myself in that identity? Mm -hmm. Well, to start off with the, the, the first kind of people you refer to, say we're talking about someone uh, who might be white, like doesn't have a college degree, is a man, uh, you know, has maybe conservative positions on things like immigration and law and order and stuff like that. Uh, and also maybe have certain cultural habits, you know, uh, prefers beer, you know, beer track rather than wine track kind of thing as well, or, you know, likes guns and uh, hunting and so on. I'd say to this kind of person, sure, you've got that identity and that's that's important to you. But I would say it's less important than uh, maybe your difficulty getting well-paid, steady, uh, you know, respected jobs, maybe housing problems, you know, problems with drugs and alcohol in your community, stuff like that. Lack of healthcare coverage when you suddenly get sick, or you know, actually these problems might be more pertinent to your life than your identity. And I'm not saying identity isn't important, not at all. I'm saying that traditionally, and I don't want to overstate the extent to which this was the case in the past, but I think, say, if you look at the labor movements in the US uh, in the New Deal era, obviously there's very much relied on this idea that white, you know, working class union man and, and, and laboring man, you know, going and uh, doing a hard day's work and, and deserving a hard, uh, a fair, you know, a fair day's wage. Mm -hmm. But that was teamed with this idea that, yeah, we must do something for the working man, right? So actually have uh, strong labor unions and obviously New Deal legislation and stuff like that. But now I would say the problem is that this identity, say, of, you know, a white sort of hunting and fishing, uh, NASCAR watching, beer drinking guy, that's often detached from anything about, okay, what are we going to do to help this guy out? 
right? So it allows people, I would say, are charlatans like Donald Trump, uh, Josh Howley, Matt Gantz, I think his name is, you know, Ron DeSantis, people like that, yeah. to say, we're like the true tribunes of the working class now, right? The working class man, you know, we stand for him. And then they don't actually do anything to help him. I mean, you know, Trump's only legislative achievement being the uh, 2017 tax cuts, right? Which I think not only cut taxes across the board, but specifically helped, uh, you know, the highest earners. So actually, if you had this detachment of identity from an understanding of like your actual material position and what you need and what would actually help you, you know, it becomes sort of frivolous, really, and becomes open to being um, abducted by you know, different kinds of bad actors. Mm. Yeah, mm. so what you're saying is that essentially it's not that identity itself is problematic. It's sort of our attachment to it and sort of, um, I guess, how much of a, how much do we feel like it's a, a part of who we are? I mean, it's always going to be a part of who we are, but it's like, if we're maybe it's the insecurity, right? Maybe it's sort of the insecurity of like, should I feel proud of this identity? And then when you kind of have people obviously kind of taking advantage of that, I think the idea behind that is, um, you know, we kind of have your back, right? It's like where it's like the world wants to sort of put you down and makes you wants to make you feel like you're, let's say you're like a hillbilly, right? Or, you know, if you're whatever, you know, kind of slur you want to use against gay people, the idea is like, you know, we're for you and we're behind you. And I think what you're arguing here is that we have to really be careful of like politicians and sort of, you know, these big corporations that are essentially mm. saying like, oh, okay, we'll be able to co-opt this idea, right? And we'll be able to, you know, kind of soothe your insecurity and let you know that the yeah. sort of the big, the big powers are behind you. Absolutely. And, and also like so-called, you know, community leaders within these groups. I'll just get to those guys in a second because mm -hmm. big corporations are a very good point. Now, of course, most uh, international corporations staunchly behind LGBT rights. You know, those that aren't really like a Chick-a-Filla in the US, for example, stand out in the, you know, uh, uh, for being unusual in that regard. But you can't help but think, right, that if, if, if you know, uh, directors and boardrooms and shareholders would, you know, knew and believed that it would help their bottom line if they were actually quite homophobic, I, I've got to think they would have gone down that direction instead, right? They probably calculated that on balance, it would be better for the long-term health of the company to not mm -hmm. be homophobic and to support gay rights and stuff. And so I think it's frivolous, you know, I think it's quite shallow and skin deep. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's one of the problems there. But also even within not just politicians and corporations, but you know, so-called community leaders uh, can, can act, act and write as though they are representative of a particular community. And of course, are they? Right? You know, who arbitrates that kind of thing? You know, who decides um, how representative someone is of the LGBTQ community, for example, when obviously it's such a diverse and uh, you know, uh, where people disagreeing with each other on all kinds of issues. So I think that's a problem as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I don't know if you were thinking about this, maybe too. So what comes to mind is Caitlyn Jenner here. So Caitlyn Jenner, who's like this advocate of obviously trans rights is also super Republican. And so on the one hand, she says, well, you know, like Trump actually loves you, you know, it's the Democrats who hate, who hate trans people and, and the homosexual people. It's like, wait, where does that, how does that even happen? How does that cognitive dissonance even happen? But you know, you really do have supporters who are like, yeah, you know, she knows exactly what she's talking about because she's one of us. And so, you know, Alan, for you, I wonder, right. Do you think that you could become so sort of entrenched in your identity where you can't see that somebody's actually using your identity against you. I think so. Yeah, I think that's actually what's happening. The thing is, identity politics sort of distracts from the real issues. It just sort of uh, creates more division between us, right? I mean, it, it has more to do with uh, class and your standing in society than necessarily your identity. So these sort of bad actors that get behind, you know, saying like, I'm for this particular identity or that particular identity, yeah. uh, it, 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 it keeps the actual issues from being sort of resolved or dealt with. Right. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah. So I was just gonna say, I agree with that 100%. So 
if you have obviously as we know within different identities or groups of people obviously there are you know various diverse opinions and politics and lifestyles and beliefs in the very heterogeneous groups right be it african americans or uh, lgbt americans or whatever obviously the millions of people have all different kinds of beliefs and the problem is then that if you say uh, that there is this cohesive coherent identity right which which stands for certain things and believes certain things and you either have it or you're not right um then yeah if someone says oh well i have this and they can act in, in bad faith as a sort of spokesperson but if you say listen to trans women right respect trans women uh accept what they what they got to say fair mm. enough but what if then like a you know right-wing republican like a caitlin jenner says ah I got to... what happens there right so you're saying oh, on the one hand we should respect it because she's a trans woman but what if we you know disagree with her politically oh and i think we're going to see a lot more of this in uh in sort of western democracies now particularly in terms of ethnicity for example you know mm -hmm. the way um we're sort of seeing it now in the uk the conservative leadership race where uh, many of the finalists are from ethnic minority backgrounds and obviously they're very good they're, they're conservatives and it's sort of tests this idea on the one hand we're taught you know that uh, ethnic minorities have these beliefs but clearly they don't and again in the us with sort of hispanic americans going over to the republicans now it seems mm -hmm. like uh, quite a steady pace this really complicates and upsets a lot of narratives about hispanic americans that we've been you know that are out there and so so yeah it just shows you how uh i don't know how just how easily these identities can be sort of weaponized and um misused yeah and it's interesting that you say that because thinking of like not only just hispanic americans but even russian americans i mean for i think because you know they come from kind of like these communist cultures i think sort of being a patriot or being uh kind of pro-freedom if you know for lack of a better term i think that's a significant part of their identity and i think for a lot of them they can't see that being a democrat or let's say i don't know even being obviously a democratic socialist which is like you know horrendous to them uh being any of those things right they can't see that it's not necessarily antithetical to freedom so i think what you it's sort of in line with what you're thinking where you get so again entrapped or ensconed in your identity where you can't see that any alternative is not necessarily terrible that you have alternatives that may actually make more sense than yours but it sort of seems like with identities and maybe you can speak to this a little bit right but it's like people get kind of trapped in their identities based on again what i said earlier based on a sense of insecurity that in some way it's like if i don't identify if i don't defend my identity to the death then somebody's either a going to try to take it away from me or b going to try to make me a victim if not both yeah um, but yeah, and again, again, I just think there's that disconnect between what's happened, you know, how is someone's identity being threatened versus how is, say, their, their, their livelihood or their standard of living being threatened. And again, politicians can be quite effective at trying to intertwine those two, um, you know, but, but, it's, but it's not always the case. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, um, what, what sort of problems were you, what, what sort of, what led to you writing this book? What were you noticing that sort of brought on um the feeling or the need to to write this book i think um noticing both in in the uk and the us the shifting nature of say of class for example right where yeah. in, in both countries you have conservative politicians who now explicitly use language that says you know whether the party of the working class or in america maybe the middle class you know uh quite explicitly now uh which which i mean the conservative you know republican party and the conservative party in the uk have always had a fair share of working class folks you know, in mm -hmm. 20th century. But now they're explicitly saying, you know, we are the true party of the working class. Whereas the left says the same thing, even though it might be becoming perhaps untrue if you look at, if we accept traditional uh, definitions of working class. Mm -hmm. And they're all trying to use this, you know, they both use this language of class. And similarly with race, uh, with, with sexuality, and even with generation, right? So with young people, uh, when young people are spoken about, be it by the left or the right, 
The right tends to depict them as, you know, frivolous snowflakes and wasting all the money on avocado toast when they should be saving for a house, you know, all these mm-hmm. online radicals, etc. And the left seems to have a sort of mirror image, you know, positive image about, yeah, they are all radical and they all want to save the planet and save the world and so on. And of course, in neither of those cases, well, I should, I should say in both of those cases, they're constructing this false identity, quote unquote, around young people, which is actually very different from the experiences and you know, realities of young people. And the same with class, the same with race, you know, it's done with African-Americans, Hispanic Americans, ethnic minorities in the UK. It's done with gay people who are assumed to be, you know, almost uniform. The policing of, of gay identity, right? Are you queer or not? Are you just mm-hmm. gay or are you queer? And, and, and so with so many different kinds of uh, people, I just noticed this rising disconnect between the sort of subjective reality of their lives, right? So being poor or being black or being a woman or being, I don't know, 21 or something. Uh, and this actual sort of media, academia, political contested identity around them, being radical, uh, being left-wing, you know, being uh, uh, conservative, et cetera. Which, and, and so just noticing that makes me think, well, actually, these, ident- uh, these identities and this disconnect is often talked about separately, you know, mm-hmm. either focusing on class or race or gender, et cetera. Um, but actually, I think there's a lot of commonalities between them. So that was what sort of uh, encouraged me to write the book. Well, yeah, so when you're talking about like... Um... When you're talking about or thinking about, let me see why I want to ask this question. When you're thinking about identities, it's not. Hmm, no, I think I lost the question. Damn, I hate when this happens. Um, okay, so whatever, I'll move on to something else. Uh, yeah, I definitely lost the question. Okay, so yeah, I was watching a, a documentary the other day called Hillbilly. And so it was a really interesting piece. And it was actually made by a liberal from Los Angeles. And so she actually moved from, uh, I think it was Kensington, Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. So whatever. So she ended up moving out to LA. And then, you know, she's like, uh, when I kind of moved out here, people had this sort of perception of who I was. You know, on the one hand, I was like a moderate Democrat. She was pro Hillary throughout the whole documentary. And I'm assuming she voted for Biden too, somewhere down the line, obviously. Uh, but like, yeah, you know, she's like, you know, you kind of get like the sense from other people that even though you're sort of with them in some way, just because you come from a different place, like they don't, they still see you as an other. So it's kind of even interesting how identity works in that respect. Because if you think about identity, oftentimes we think like, let's say if Alan and I like disagree or agree even politically, right? Uh, there's a sort of sense that he and I are sort of one and the same, right? But here's this person who did agree with the people that she went to kind of, that she moved to or to be near or whatever uh, in Los Angeles that um they did agree politically, but yet for whatever reason, they still saw her kind of as the other. And they're like, oh, hey, where'd you get that accent from? Um, like, oh, you must have been poor or whatever it is. Like they have like these, so it's yeah. the Appalachian Mountains, right? So they have these kind of conceptions of what her life was like. And, you know, she comes home and then her parents, and it wasn't her parent, it was her grandmother and then her uncle. And then I think the nephew, and they were like, yeah, well, what did you expect? Like, what did you think would happen in the life? We're, we're, we're not, we're outsiders mm-hmm. to like these people. So it's so interesting how like on the one hand, politically, her identity matched with Los Angeles. And obviously, you know, just the area that she wanted to be in, just generally mm-hmm. speaking. But yeah. then also, in addition to that, it's sort of contrasted because, like, on the one hand, she sensed, okay, like these are my people. But then on the other hand, she was like, oh, but in some way, I still feel inferior to them. So it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting how these identities clash or can clash. Absolutely, I think it's really. I mean, one of it's a sort of small theme of the book, but I think one of the most important and interesting aspects of all this identity, all these identity issues, is the 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 importance of in betweeners to this, right? People who are from one environment and then they, they, they go to work or live in another, et cetera. Um, people who are, say, African-American, but rich or, you know, from a privileged background. Actually, yeah. in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air does this brilliantly in the 90s, you know, because mm-hmm. on the one hand, they're black, but they're also rich. And the yeah. figure of Carlton in particular is, is just this wonderful, uh, you know, examination of, of the theme is kind of in-betweener. And I think it happens a lot, right? So, indeed, people moving from, say, 
uh, rural Appalachia to Los Angeles, um, people going from uh, certain backgrounds to elite universities or to live in big cities and work in you know competitive fields like media and so on. Very common thing in both Britain and the US. And I think it does very interesting things to their identity, right? And, and we can go in different ways. Sometimes I think people can sort of double down on, on, on this aspect of, yeah, of being the kid from Appalachia or like the, this working class part of England who, who got it, you know, who's in this crowd. And that's like, and again, it can, it can do very well for them, right? If they're, again, if you're, say, uh, an African-American or a black British kid from a quite middle class, or I mean, the British middle class, you know, quite a comfortable background, and you go to an elite university and maybe there's not that, you know, it's a, maybe quite a white place, or if you work in quite a white uh, profession afterwards, in many ways, you're seen as the black one, you know, to all your white colleagues and friends. But at home, maybe you've always been called like a coconut or something like that. You know, at home, your, your friends back home see you as the least black person they know because right. you went to Harvard or whatever, et cetera. Um, and you know, so, so this is really important. Um, and so sometimes I think people can double down on that and yeah, and really hem up their Appalachian background or pretend they were from a much more sort of uh, more you know dangerous neighborhood than they actually came from or whatever. And on the other hand, I think, and this is a real problem in the UK, and I mentioned it quite a bit in the book, is that you can have people who sort of retrospectively change, uh, you know, their memories of, of actually how it was growing up, right? So you have some people who, uh, you know, go from quite working class backgrounds and, and, you know, provincial backgrounds and so on, and go to London, go to elite universities, where they become, you know, the northern one, right? The north in the UK, obviously, being the sort of, you know, post-industrial, traditionally poorer part. Um, mm. And they become the working class one. And then sometimes they actually sort of shift how it was back then, so they misremember it. So actually, when politicians or analysts or academics or journalists make points about how working class people might be more pro, uh, sorry, anti-immigration, might be more socially conservative on certain issues, they sort of say, how dare you? You know, I came from there and look at all my you know, perfectly mm. acceptable liberal opinions. And I think that's an interesting thing because I think that's a real false memory. I think if you ask these people growing up in school, you know, in, in these areas, was it the case that everyone was really dead liberal with the kids on the playground really open to all different kinds of diversity of opinion and different kinds of personalities or no actually you know were you at school quite unusual and maybe bullied and unusual for being you know really into books and learning and so on and hence you got the hell out of there at age 18 went to an elite college and never came back and now actually you're sort of misremembering or misconstruing the identity of these people you know you're using this identity for your own sort of political or, or personal lens right yeah, and it's so interesting, again, how like identities can sort of conflict, because it's like, we're sort of trying to create, I mean, it's just human psychology or human nature, whatever you want to call it, we're trying to create a coherent, coherent sort of image of who we are. And it's kind of hard to do that when you're sort of when you're feeling like, let's say, if you're a liberal, and then you're also, let's say, a working class person, but then again, you come into a community where you're rejected, and so or at least feel rejected, I don't want to say like, even in the film, I mean, maybe she technically wasn't rejected. I mean, those are some pretty like terrible jokes that she received. But I mean, I get it, maybe the conception is really that she wasn't rejected. Uh, but like, even if you feel rejected then you're kind of wondering like hey do i really want to be a liberal or do i actually maybe want to be with these people and i kind of wonder do you sort of sense that sometimes where when you're seeing people with these sort of conflicts that sometimes when they do feel rejected by let's say um i know either the establishment or some sort of new way of being that they kind of run back and say oh we'll see the old way was better that it's like i have to go back to my old community maybe i have to turn from a liberal to republican maybe these are my people it all kind of seems irrational in a way right it seems like we can't sort of disconnect our environment from our decisions especially in obviously in this context, in the context of identity. It's like, you know, if certain people reject us, it's kind of hard not to say, you know, screw you, I'm going to go be a Trump supporter. Yeah, absolutely. well, I tell you what, one of the, the best thing that the left could do in Britain and America 
is abolish secret ballots. You know, mm -hmm. it would destroy the right if everyone knew how you voted. If it was like mm -hmm. old school, uh, two hundred years ago, like a caucus or something, it's like I'm voting for Hillary yeah. or I'm voting for Trump, or whatever. You know, right. Hillary Clinton would have won the twenty sixteen election easily. Electoral College as well. Labour would have won the last few elections in the UK. Yeah, that's why she won in the polls. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a long term problem, isn't it? But I think. It's because I think that rejection among so many people goes on. I mean, I spend a lot of time with young people, uh, you know, in an educational sense. And of so many young people that I know who, who I've worked with, et cetera, they are very liberal, right? They have all kinds of left, you know, very standard and consistent left-wing beliefs on, say, trans rights and climate change and so on. But very often when they've just been speaking privately with me or, you know, amongst like peers they can trust, so many of them express express this frustration, you know, worried about what they're saying, a real fear of getting cancelled for saying something wrong or thinking just because I'm a white woman and I'm not a trans or not a lesbian, you know, I, sh I shouldn't really talk. And that's all in there, right? And, and so many kids. Now, none of that means that they're actually conservative in any way. Yeah, that means, you know, not at all. But definitely, I think so many people now have this feeling that they, yeah, this sort of frustration of being they don't want to say the wrong thing and so they feel sort of rejected and unfortunately because we do have secret ballots in the voting booth nobody knows how you vote so i think there's so many people across society you know young old left wing uh sorry left right black white etc who may say publicly to pollsters to their friends uh in you know in research etc oh yeah sure i believe in all these things but when it comes to when it comes to november you know and actually voting it's almost like they remember all these slights and all these like obnoxious online behavior from different people and just, you know, you know I, I think that's, I think that's something that's going on. Yeah. So people feel this kind of rejection uh, because they don't know the right things to say and, and so on. And even if they have these sincerely held liberal beliefs, maybe yeah, that sort of frustration pu pushes people more towards the right. Yeah. And Alan, I mean, you know, a few folks like that, right? So who kind of feel like they can't express themselves politically. I mean, especially, yeah, so, I mean, I have some friends in New York who are uh, very conservative, but the thing is, New York is not that sort of environment, right? So they feel um, on the outs, so to speak, uh, they can't necessarily express um, how they feel politically. Otherwise, you know, you'll be sort of, so to speak, exiled from the yeah. herd, right? And so, um, they're, they're, yeah, I, I see those kinds of conflicts. And uh, that's unfortunate, right? You should be able to sort of express what it is that you that you feel politically, not necessarily need to feel safety in the herd, right? Which is which yeah. is a need that so many of us have, and mm -hmm. yeah. And that's um, when people. I mean, I don't I, I don't use the phrase in the book cancel culture, and it's not something I talk about. But when people talk about this, or when people say, oh, you know, it doesn't really exist, they might talk about high profile figures like J.K. Rowling or, or Dave Chappelle, and say, well, look. J.K. Rowling still has this huge platform. Dave Chappelle gets this huge Netflix deal. They're not being cancelled. They're not being silenced. And I think fair enough. But the problem is actually the sort of thing you were just talking about then, absolutely, where it's, it's more just ordinary folks. You know, to use, to use a word I don't like, folks, but yeah. anyway, uh, ordinary people uh, who, yeah, just in, in bars or uh, at dinner tables or amongst their own family, maybe don't feel as they can not necessarily express hostile, horrible views, but even things that are sort of coded as being a bit conservative and maybe they don't feel they can express it. And that's not just a problem for them, and, you know, a problem for communication, but absolutely, because we have secret ballots, they can definitely express it in the voting booth. So I think that it's harmful to the left to, you know, sort of have this policing of language in a more public sphere when, you know, in the private sphere of the voting booth, you can't police how someone votes.
Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting because again, going back to that documentary hillbilly, I mean, I remember thinking like, so when they're talking about, so it's the grandmother in the, in the documentary, she was saying how she's like, well, you know, Hillary Clinton thinks that we here are all deplorables. And so I, so hearing that, I remember thinking like, wow, man, I actually don't know how to really feel about this because on the one hand that this is the conflict of identity. On the one hand, I would consider myself actually a moderate Democrat. So I would say, well, I kind of agree with Hillary Clinton because I mean, this is the person I voted for. Uh, but then on the other hand, I identified with the lady because she was a working class person. And I was like, you know, kind of fuck Hillary Clinton. I was like, she's like this stu stuffy, like billionaire, right? What does she even know about the working class? Like, who is she to call anybody anything, right? So it's like, there's this sort of conflict again between here, identify with this lady who I would say for the most part, especially for the vast majority of my life, I am her, in on her economic sort of, uh, on her economic like uh, level or status or whatever, right? Yeah. So her and I would say pretty much would be able to identify with each other there. But then you have Hillary Clinton, who I would obviously identify with politically, but I have no idea what her life is like. I have no idea what it would is like growing up for her i have no idea what being at like those elite boarding schools was like going to elite universities etc right so again it's like this conflict because i'm like okay i mean i kind of agree with hillary that yes a lot of these people are deplorables but it can't be that the majority of them are because like when you hear a lot of these stories they really do feel abandoned by the government so they would say something like well you know uh, well under obama we were promised jobs and we figured like you know there would be more corporations and factories and you know pretty much just there would be economic activity activity stimulated somehow by the government that we just never received that corporate are obviously leaving they're all kind of like outsourcing and going outside of the country and you could identify with these people you know it's like i kind of yeah. see that you and oh and they would tell you it's not that so for them they would say look it's not that we're excusing trump's behavior it's just that and then look i'm not even saying that this is the right thing to even think or say but for them they would say it's not that we're excusing trump's behavior but we just don't know what else to do we can look at the establishment they've disappointed us for like the past whatever it is you know since clinton um so we don't know what else to do right so it's like well, what do we have to lose at this point like sure we support trump and then it doesn't work out okay great and we just go back to the way things were. And so I think it's so important to get kind of an insider's view on what life is like for people in the rural areas, because I think it's obviously unfair. And obviously you would agree that it's, you can't just call them all deplorables and then course, expect yeah. like, yeah, and then expect to win elections. I mean, even practically speaking, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's, it's all about the sort of reconstitution of the left or, you know, the Democrats and so on, and who votes for them and why that's been going on over the past few decades. Because right. you have this awkwardness whereby, yeah, as you say, I mean, we had this incident in the UK at the 2010 general, elect general election, when the hapless, soon-to-be ex-Prime Minister Gordon Brown was out on the campaign trail, you know, glad-handing people in photo, in photo calls and stuff. And this woman sort of approached him, started complaining about other things, about immigration. I'm not saying that any outrageous thing, just saying something like, you know, loads of Eastern Europeans have moved over here, and, you know, et cetera, and competing for jobs and homes, you know, you know standard kind of stuff. And he, afterwards, he gets back into his limousine and he's being driven away. He doesn't realize he's got a hot mic. The hell mic is still on. And he says, oh, you know, talking to that dreadful, bigoted woman. Um, and sure enough, he lost the election a few weeks later. Uh, not, not just because of that remark, but it's saying it didn't help. And you've got that disconnect, as you were just saying, where I'm thinking, well, on the one hand, this woman said she'd voted Labour all her life beforehand. And I think, yeah, you know, we want to help uh, women like her. But obviously, I don't share her beliefs. And yet... You know, the same party thinks it's standing for both of us, you know, both the traditional working class uh, of a certain generation with more social conservatives and the young, you know, urban metropolitan liberal graduates. And that's a real problem for, for the Democrats and Labour, you know, trying to square these, you know, po po politics with broader cultural beliefs, right? So for us, we have certain politics and also broader cultural beliefs around immigration or, or indeed about race anyway. And yet other people, of course, don't have those cultural beliefs. So how can we, you know, have a political... Uh, how can we have a, a political cause, if you like, that's that's based on these fractured identities? And just something else, but I'll just go on a brief tangent, something sure. you mentioned before, 
uh, which I meant to bring up, just again about um, the film Hillbilly and stuff and how uh, she goes to, to Los Angeles with these liberal beliefs, but she's actually distant from the culture. Uh, my wife does a lot of research on Jaffa and gentrification in Jaffa. Now, Jaffa, you just explained, is the traditionally Muslim uh, city, uh, which was sort of attached to Tel Aviv, is now being very much gentrified um, with an ethnic dimension, right? So a lot of the Palestinians are being forced out of Jaffa to be replaced by Jewish Israelis. And one of the guys, a Palestinian community leader, to use that phrase uh, in Jaffa, says, you know, it's interesting, actually, uh, even though the younger liberal Israelis like have the same politics as us, right? They hate Netanyahu, you know, and the, the very sort of anti-occupation and stuff. And even though they're doing the gentrification, they, 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 they hate it, they're opposed to it. So like Brooklyn hipsters or something, you know, or anti-gentrification, but you know, we're doing it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, but actually, culturally, like, there's not that much sympathy. So for example, there's this big issue about chickens, right? Because apparently a lot of young liberal Israelis kept complaining that the Palestinians like raised chickens in the yard and like rose cr like, crowing and stuff when the sun comes up. And, uh, and it causes all kinds of communal tensions because they're like, oh, you know, we really support you guys, but you know, could you could you not like not keep live fowl here or something like that? So yeah, uh, this is one of the problems for the left because you know, it, ostensibly we're meant to have sort of certain common political aims and trying to find common political cause with disparate groups of people. But very often there are these sort of cultural clashes. So it makes it harder to have a politics based on a common identity. So it's much better to just try and think of sort of structural problems, you know, like I don't know, rent, for example, uh, and housing. Yeah. And can we, you tell us a little bit more about, or can we go a little deeper into how like sort of personalities, I mean, because I know I already mentioned that, you know, you have these sort of conflicts in identity, right? But how is it that personalities are complicated, right? Because you know how I said that Hillary Clinton called everybody deplorables, but the idea is like, well, obviously that's not true. Not everybody's just a bigot. I mean, they all have their kind of various reasons for voting for Trump. So can we talk about how identities can actually be just like, sort of like if you think about like mental health diagnoses, right? We can't just say, well, X has narcissistic personality disorder. So therefore we can predict everything that he's going to do, right? That's not I mean, because, you know, narcissism is encompassed in a whole in a wider personality structure. So can you tell us a little bit more about how identity is way more nuanced than we often see it? Yeah, that's it. So what, I, I suppose it depends how you think of identity, right? So the German philosopher Immanuel Kant spoke a lot about this. It's almost like if you're in a situation, right, do you, you're presented with a challenge or a decision to make, you know, how to vote or, or, or you know, what to do in a certain situation. Is it the case that you act, you do something, you make a decision, and that tells you about who you are and your identity? Or is mm -hmm. it more you think, okay, what should someone like me do in a situation like this? Like, what am I, what, who am I? What kind of person am I? And therefore, what should I do, right? And I think there's a lot of that going on now, because I think for, for again, to use that word, ordinary folk, I think for your average, not, not very well politically uh, switched on Joe, Joe average voter, who maybe doesn't think about these issues too much and doesn't really care for politics, when it comes to election time um, or even just like having a discussion in a bar or something on certain issues, you know, what do you think about this? Or how are you going to vote? They might just give their opinion. Right? And very often that's inconsistent. You know, these opinions are inconsistent. You know, on the one hand, uh, I want better, more money for Medicare, but on the other hand, I want lower taxes and smaller government or whatever <laughs> it is. Uh, and so I think that's where most voters are. I think that's where most people are. You know, when it comes to their identities, uh, they're very diverse and, uh, and difficult to, to pin down, really, right? So be it African-Americans, LGBT people, young people, whoever, right? Their, their sort of political, cultural identity is often more complicated than we'd ever imagined. Right? The guy I was talking about at the start of the show, beer drinking, NASCAR, watching, uh, you know, hunting person. He may also, like ballet, for example, you know, stuff like that happens all the time. Or he may have an interest in uh, rare wine or something, you know, things like that do happen all the time. Um, 
that's something I talk about a lot in the book, actually, stuff like, a, you know, like a, a black punk music and stuff like that. And all this kind of stuff which, which people think doesn't happen and actually it does. Anyway, uh, on the other hand, I think some maybe people who are more politically switched on, politically people who are more online, uh, you know, people who have uh, postgraduate degrees, et cetera, you know, the kind I'm talking about. Maybe for them, it's always it's almost the way around. Right. And that's where the conflict comes from, because they think, OK, I am a liberal. I am a Democrat. You know, I am X and what I and therefore on this issue, I be, you know, this is how I behave. This is how I vote. This is what I think. Right. So they're trying to have that kind of consistency, which is coherent with this identity that they have of themselves. That makes right. sense. So they end up actually with a much more consistent set of opinions. Sometimes I would say quite detrimentally, actually, I think sometimes uh, certainly on the British left and I imagine amongst the democratic socialists of America as well. Trying to have c constant consistency on issues can maybe get you into difficulties on certain things. Um, I mean, we've seen like the British left, for example, which is generally like the, you know, the hard left of the British left, which obviously has quite a, a tough line on, on US and British and great, uh, sorry, excuse me, foreign policy. And yet when it comes to the war in Ukraine, of course, where the West is on like the right side, if you like, or the good side, you know, they have difficulty there because they're so used to condemning the West. So it's almost like it causes problems for them. But more than that, I think it's, it's just not, there's not enough understanding of this actually that, and so often when it comes to people in the media, academia, politicians, they very often have this consistent political cultural identity, whereas average people often don't. Mm. Um, question, how do you think that maybe we can, because the problem here is essentially that people try to stay as congruent to the identity that they have, right? That's why they have these consistent beliefs and um, consistent leanings, depending on whatever political party they're affiliated with. Um, what do you think it is that maybe we can do, maybe besides uh, besides uh, public ballots, not secret ballots, um, to sort of get people to sort of think in more nuanced ways and maybe not just try to be consistent to whatever you identify as. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult because I think there's far more money uh, and political success in doing the opposite. Yeah, very true, especially um, here. I mean, yeah, I can obviously probably yeah. with you guys too, but here, oh my God, man, corporations do this all the time. You have no idea. I mean, we kind of know that they're disingenuous, but like, yes, it's that. Social media. Yeah, social media. Yeah, the, the oh, virtue signaling is huge here. Oh my God, but yeah, please go on. Yeah, no, that's it. But I think one, one thing I think when it comes to say, breaking down say ideas around say african-american example or lgbt people or hispanic americans and so on is the the, the reality of the diversity of culture and, and and political uh beliefs amongst these different groups of people so the rise of people like eric adams who believes a friend of the show uh in new york <laughs> right so is it eric adams and all different kinds of african-american politicians and uh, jim clyburn in, in south carolina okay he's he, not he hasn't recently risen he's been around a long time but the fact that you have now a lot of african-american politicians you know, really trying to move away from this defund the police, uh, abolish the police kind of right. arguments and are very publicly and, and taking up, you know, being more visible in the media and so on, making these more sort of moderate arguments. I think that starts to fracture these things. You know, I think it's very difficult to maintain uh, quite obviously false uh, ideas about the coherence of political opinion amongst LGBT people or African-Americans, which many activists, media companies, politicians have an interest in doing. When that is not the case, right? and when 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 things when when the media and the public arena and politics is becoming more diverse, when we're seeing more and more LGBTQ politicians, for example, and indeed many of them are very conservative, for example, we're seeing more and more Af uh, African American and Hispanic American politicians on both sides of the Atlantic, not not African American in Britain, but anyway, 
And of course, obviously, very often they are conservative, so it makes it harder and harder to maintain this, you know, simplistic idea of the connection mm. between things like ethnicity or sexuality and uh, political cultural identity. Having said that, I think, yeah, it, it's hard, and, and there's maybe more money and attention to be won give away. And I think definitely in the US, less so in the UK, I think, because I think in the UK there's definitely less of this sort of you know white working class maybe under attack kind of identity which which people like trump and and DeSantis and gantz etc josh howley so successfully tap into and i think that's a problem because i don't think any you know maybe someone like john fetterman i think is maybe a good good person with something like this right so he's obviously white he has this like working class you know ordinary kind of guy identity right. and of course he has lots of left-wing positions and all kinds of things you know not just on the economy and stuff but obviously marijuana and stuff like that and i'm sure some of the cultural issues uh, mm -hmm. where he's quite liberal yeah so people like him are good for that maybe but i think generally unfortunately when it comes to sort of white working class quote-unquote identity uh i think you're not going to get people like josh howley sort of let's let's have a nuanced approach to this actually many people many working class people uh want criminal justice reform and don't you know don't mind higher levels of immigration he's not going to say stuff like that yeah. uh, you know so 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 that's an issue there but as i say i just think the the reality of the complexity and heterogeneity of uh, cultures and politics amongst different so-called identity groups is just going to become more and more apparent as we have more people from these different groups, you know, getting pet there, producing more TV shows and directing more films and uh, getting elected to political office. Yeah. And this sort of makes me think of, uh, I mean, in slavery times when we're thinking about like, so the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. And I remember Frederick Douglass commenting on, I don't remember exactly what he said because it was so long ago when I read it, but I remember when he commented on how, what it was like when slaves were emancipated and essentially the poor whites at the time saw them as threats to labor. So the idea was, it's like, you know, instead of us sort of banding together and saying, okay, here are these emancipated workers and laborers and let's sort of, you know, kind of form these yeah. unions together. It was like, oh no, you know, let's kill them. Let's take them out, right? They're taking our jobs. And you sort of see this right it's again you know what these how they say what's old is new again it's the same thing again it's like oh well now it's these immigrants taking our jobs but it's so interesting how like again when you're thinking of political parties and I, I, again i had this sort of um it was sort of a, a kind of discrepancy or just sort of juxtaposition where i was sort of like on the one hand okay i'm a working class person or at least i feel that way and then on the other hand you have somebody like hillary clinton who agrees with my political perspectives but yet she's not like me in any significant way whatsoever except for that mm -hmm. kind of sphere of things right um so but yeah but it makes me wonder how like we so identify with people politically, but yet I always wonder, and I, this is not like to necessarily fan the flames here, but I always wonder like how much do these like democratic elites actually, like how much do they care about like the rest of the country? Or how much, how many of our interests do they actually have like in their minds? Like how much do they actually care? So again, it's so hard to kind of see how on the one hand we're sort of criticizing again, these deplorables, but yet on the other hand, I would say the vast majority of us are more like them than we want to admit. Yeah, as in the deplorables or the people who criticize the deplorables. Yeah, no, the, so the deplorables, like these rural people, right? So again, I just think for the most part, I, I so I, I hesitate because I don't mean I don't have the data. I can't say, oh, well, you know, most of them are really great people. I mean, they're people. I'm assuming it's a mixed bag of good and bad, right? But yeah, from what at least I've seen in, you know, documentaries, newsreels or whatever, I mean, it seems like they're just struggling people. And, you know, you could kind of look at them and say, yeah, I've been there at periods in my life. Of course, I know how they're feeling. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think, I mean, and a really interesting thing going on now is the, uh, on a, you know, in a broader sort of macroeconomic scale, is the increasing precarity of what was once middle class work. Again, middle right. class in the British sense, you know, professional, white collar, solidly paid work. Right. And so many young people, graduates, you know, they went to college, got their four year degree, et cetera. 
and they can't get the same kind of steady job and a certain level of income and prosperity, you know, like buying a house or et cetera, as their parents could, right? Mm -hmm. So you're having this complication now where absolutely, it's not just people in say Appalachia or Rust Belt areas in, in, in you know, in, in the Midwest or wherever, who are suffering uh, from all different kinds of, of bad economic times. Lots of young people and, um, you know, college graduates, et cetera, have similar kinds of problems now. Uh, so actually, yeah, I think if we really, the biggest disconnect is between a fairly small number of highly paid political media, uh, even academic elites. And again, within the media and academia, there are certainly large numbers of proletarianized, you know, very lowly paid people, of course. But what I'm saying is there's a difference between a, a fairly small number of uh, elite people who do have secure, well-paid jobs and a growing number of people, different kinds of backgrounds and different kinds of political opinions who are fed up with them and really don't like what they've got to say and find them patronizing and insulting, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, even if you think about uh, uh, someone I quote in the book is uh, African-American sociologist Tasha Philpott and her book, Black Democrats, where she says that, you know, black people, African-Americans are really quite conservative. They just happen to be democratic, you know. <laughs> they don't vote Republican for reasons of, you know, association with Republicans with racism, but really, really, they don't have that much in common with even more moderate Democrats, um, never mind like the left wing of the Democrats. So actually, yes, so-called deplorables are a more heterogeneous bunch than we would think. And in many cases, many of us might be denounced as deplorables for all kinds of, you know, fairly centrist, you know, fairly liberal opinions. Yeah. So I think this is a problem when you have, say, a, a liberal uh, media and political class which is maybe increasingly disconnected from the rest of the country, absolutely not just traditional white working class deplorables, but indeed Hispanic people, African-Americans, LGBT people, young people. And on the other hand, you have this uh, right-wing conservative political class, which maybe, you know, as conservatives so often do, you know, they, they sense this, you know, they sense this opportunity for, to, to exploit this, but unfortunately they don't have the best interests of deplorable people or, you know, uh, struggling young people or whoever at heart. They're just going to use this disconnect between the, you know, the liberal elite and the rest for their own sinister aims. And nothing's going to get done. You know, nothing's going to get done. I mean, this is the real problem. I think if you have, I mean, I was actually really enthusiastic about Joe Biden at the start because obviously he was talking big about all the stuff he was going to do to the economy and restructuring the economy and welfare and all the rest of it. And I thought if mm -hmm. he can provide lots of really good steady jobs and help people with their health care bills and help people, you know, control rent or get housing or whatever, all the kind of you know, controlled oxytocin in communities, you know, all the kinds of stuff that people are really struggling with, then maybe actually we'll have the sort of subsidence of all this sort of identity nonsense that we've seen in the past few years. Right. And of course that hasn't happened. And I think mm -hmm. it's very difficult to make that happen. And of course, if right-wing politicians like Trump or whoever, you know, if Trump again, or the successes of Trump, if they're able to use this, uh, these sort of, uh, this, this backlash against, you know, wokeness and this backlash against, identity politics to get into office again they're not actually going to do anything to help you know help the underlying causes of these like resentments and divisions and all the rest of it so yeah i think it's very difficult i think it's a it's a difficult situation where yeah i think no one really has an incentive to try and calm these divisions you know it's, there's, there's less right. money to be made and, and certainly less uh, political advancement to be had trying to calm these identity divisions yeah
Yeah, and not to be too critical of her, because I kind of understand the sort of the, the perspective or how this happens. But it's so interesting how we kind of think that like whoever you are, or your values are or can be at least so strong that they kind of override your environmental influences. So uh, just somebody who comes to mind is like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. So she's interesting, because there's a part of all of us that wants to sort of believe that she's still like a working class person. And look, and again, I don't want to just be like a hater, because she's done some some good things, right? But she's not. I mean, let's let's be real right so you could first of all she makes a ton of money that's number one uh number two is she's literally famous at this point so she's got a ton of like in terms of whatever funding she gets from magazines or whatever you know uh, royalties or whatnot i'm sure there's something there um and then on top of that i mean you have this person who's going getting invited to met galas and whatever else so just because you're wearing a, a dress that says eat the rich or whatever i mean you're essentially part of the you're part of the upper class so it's interesting how you have people who like try to walk that type rope but i'm not even sure that that's possible so i think that like at this point, regardless of what your political stance is, I think once you hit that upper class and look, maybe she's not upper, maybe she's not wealthy, but let's say she's upper middle class at the very yeah. least. Um, once you hit that, I just think it's impossible for you to turn around and say, yes, I still have a deep sort of care for people in the working class. I think you sort of start to distance yourself from them and start to kind of uh, sort of de-identify with them. Yeah. That, I mean, so I think very often it's not necessarily about your income at any particular time but more like your potential or like what is possible for you, right? Mm -hmm. And AOCs, I mean, I mentioned her in the book, in the, in the part on class, which uh, is uh, just to say to your listeners, the first part on class is quite British focused. It then becomes much more like about the US and other countries. But even in the first part, when I'm talking about class, I talk about AOC. And I say, you know, AOC says she would consider herself to be working class because, you know, her parents were immigrants or what have you. And she used to wait tables, uh, you know, to pay her way through Boston, or not pay her way through Boston University, because I think you have to wait tables for many years to actually pay your way through, you know, to top up her, um, her, her funding or her loans or whatever. And you know, she has that experience of working in a bar or a restaurant. And I think, yeah, who doesn't? Like, all kind of, I mean, I've worked in lots of restaurants and bars and stuff like that, but I certainly don't go around pretending to be like the, the ordinary voice of the working class man. Uh, anymore. Not that I'm, uh, you know, as privileged as AOC, of course, but, you know, I think the difference is where are you going to, right? Say if you spend a few summers working in an Amazon warehouse uh, when you're younger, but you're, you know, you go on and you, you get a standard corporate job or whatever, you know, not the, like the best job, but okay, decent, afford, you know, middle class lifestyle. What about all the people who are going to be working there forever? You know, what about the right. 60 year old guys who's going to be working that warehouse forever? What about the people who are only ever going to wait tables? You know, mm -hmm. What about them, AOC? You know, so that's the problem. So I think it's, yeah, I think, but at the, and that's why if she can just sort of admit that and say, okay, you know, I, I accept I'm in this position and therefore, yeah, I don't have that connection anymore. The problem is then when she tries to give the impression that she is representative of ordinary working class Hispanic women. And of course, actually on lots of issues like abortion, for example, she is not, you know, she's actually much more liberal than, work, you know, working class Hispanic women, hence the, the you know increasing numbers of uh, Hispanic, especially men actually, but women as well, uh, voting for Republicans right now. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem. That's the disconnect. I think this is also a, a high-profile New, New York Times columnist, such as Charles Charles Blow, for yep. example. Uh, you know, nice guy. I, I you know agree with a lot of his politics, even though I think he doesn't express them in the best way sometimes. But whatever. But again, the idea that he's representative of the average African American is complete nonsense. And I think it, but he sort of pretends as though he is, you know, not, not financially, of course, but politically. You know, he, he actually says, you know, I'm speaking on behalf of this much broader community who implicitly have the same opinions as him. And I think we need more honesty there from people who may have come from, say, a working class background or may have come from a fairly ordinary background, but now have this prestigious and high income position in, in, in media or politics or what have you. 
No, they don't. They are no longer the authentic representatives of, of you know, a certain group of people, if they ever were. Mm. Alan, remember we had uh, Kirk Schneider on the show to talk about Braver Angels? That's right. Yeah. So we, we were discussing ways to sort of, I mean, his book was about uh, depolarizing America, mm -hmm. which is very ambitious, but he did outline um, a sort of step-by-step -step process in order to sort of um, get people to sort of try to understand the other political extreme, right? Um, Leanne, I think you uh, also uh, recall, um, it, so they would have these sort of organized uh, dialogues where essentially what they would do is kind of, I'm going to break it down this way because I don't remember the exact process, yeah, totally. but essentially they would be doing this process of sort of uh, steel manning each other's arguments, okay. right? So uh, for for any of our audience, uh, you may have heard us use this term before, but just in case for uh, steel manning is when you might um, try to represent the other person's argument or a political leaning or their perspective as best as you understand it. Um, and then you ask them, is that a correct understanding of it? Uh, then you might give your own political leanings or your own uh, perspective and the other person tries to understand you. And what this process does is essentially it creates more rapport between the two people with the opposite perspectives uh, because at least there's um, understanding there. And then through dialogue, they try to sort of integrate um, each other's perspectives to have a more of a, a nuanced view uh, politically. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, and this is with ordinary people, but again, you know, ordinary, right? But this is just like with regular people who just, you know, you kind of meet on the street and you don't necessarily want to talk to on an everyday basis because they don't meet your political needs. Yeah, that's it. That's, I think, again, very often, whilst obviously there are certain stark divisions on certain topics, yeah, not that often, right? So something like abortion, for example, whilst you have some people who are very, very, you know, pro-life in any situation, mm -hmm. and you have other people who say abortion right up until it's born, like who gives a damn, you know, abort away. On both sides, they're in a bit of a minority, you know, I think it's only, you know, I think less than a third of Americans in total maybe have one of those polarized opinions. And about 60%, 65% are somewhere in the middle, you know, abortion in, in certain circumstances. So very often, yeah, if you take a group of ordinary people and you sit them down and, and talk about things like gay marriage or trans rights or climate change or abortion, you'll definitely have people on either side who, you know, on polar opposites. But I think a lot of people will be somewhere awkwardly in the middle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the reality of people's opinions. Unfortunately, you've got both the structures of the political system, which in both the UK and the US favors a two-party system, I think especially in the US when there are literally, effectively, I mean, only two parties in Congress, et cetera. Right. Um, but also this, this, these identity wars that I've been talking about, right? So it's not just that you have this structural breaking of people into two camps, you know, pro-abortion or anti-abortion, you know, care right. about climate change or don't care about climate change. But actually you have this sort of, uh, these identity blocks, right? You know, I am a pro-lifer, you know, I am a pro-choicer, you know, right. which, which forces you into these different blocks. But actually, yeah, very often if you sit people down and, and they go through their positions and understand why they have them, uh, rather than just thinking, oh, it's because you're evil, right? Or it's because mm -hmm. you're, you're in one of these groups. That's why you have their opinions. Then, yeah, mm -hmm. that's maybe one way to help people. But how to do that is difficult because, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to be one of these people who always attack social media. But I think, yeah, again, social media has a role in this whereby if people maybe used to have these interactions in the workplace, right, they physically go into work and mix with each other, uh, it, maybe even in college and stuff like that, high school things like bowling clubs and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, little league games, all, you know, those kind of social mixing and stuff. That's been on decline for a while. 
because physical workplaces are declining. Colleges tend to become more, you know, elite and stuff and all the rest of it. And so maybe people now, when they do interact with each other, it's on social media, which has this identity sort of, you know, effect where people do group themselves literally by saying in their pro, you know, in their profile, having a flag to say they're one thing or the other, you know, having certain keywords in their profile, which tell you right away which group they're in. So instead of people sitting down and saying, oh, you know, actually, we've got a lot in common here. It'll be like, you know, pro-Trump, pro-life, pro-Israel, you know, uh, et cetera. Or, uh, you know, pro-choice, uh, pro-Cuba, like Venezuelan flag, or you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, this is, this is a problem because I think those conversations often aren't being had. Yeah. And you kind of see this on like two sort of two hands or two spheres. On the one hand, you have people who are cloud chasing and they're just kind of using other people on the alternative side to just, you know, promote their own image. But then you have like sort of other people who are just very sensitive and they get super defensive and block anybody who disagrees with them. So it's like, how do you have any yeah. discourse that way, especially on Twitter? Yeah, I have sort of a, a working idea. I'm still working sure. on it, but um, we talked about this on a previous show too. Uh, the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Right where essentially um, the the algorithms for these different social media sites sort of pri um, prioritize for more um, time spent on site, right? And, and they create these uh, echo chambers, get people more of the same things that they're liking or even kind of disliking in order to get reactions from them. Um, so I was just, one of my working ideas is if, if, it, if it can be done is to sort of regulate what sort of algorithms are allowed to be used through these social media sites. So this way you might get more of a diverse, um, uh, more diverse uh, information out to the, to the masses, as opposed to getting these people in these chambers and then magnifying their um, viewpoints. Yeah. And you're saying like the stuff that's promoted on screen, right? So you'll get like a liberal and like a conservative and a neutral. Ideally somebody will get all types of information right, yeah. as they're posted. Mm -hmm. So this way you have more of a, um, balanced or potential at least potentially right. a balanced perspective uh, on a given subject gotcha yeah 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 i mean i definitely if they could do that that would be a great help i'm not sure you know how much can be achieved by changing obviously, obviously yeah social media has a vested interest in conflict and competition all that and given you know creating these echo chambers and so on certainly driving conflict if they could improve that that'd be great but one yeah. problem I think, which can't be solved by algorithms, is that frankly, if you are, you know, an aspiring liberal or conservative media personality, it doesn't do you any good to be nuanced and to be, you know, you're not going to get lots of retweets and followers and likes for, for <laughs> having more nuance and subtlety and stuff like that. Right. And no amount of fiddling with algorithms is going to change that really, um, unfortunately. You know, it's more about can we somehow change the commercial incentives to towards having more polarized opinions? Hopefully, in which case a lot of people buy my book, <laughs> which is which obviously has this. I, I like to think more nuanced approach, but right mm -hmm. now I think that's a big problem. That it just it it gets more you know retweets and stuff if you have a more yeah polarized. extreme. Yeah. And by the way, man, so yeah, that's what I actually really do appreciate about your work. It's it's complicated. So you kind of, you don't just have like these cookie cutter definitions of who certain people are to say, these people are like this and those people are like that. So because humans are so complicated, I guess that's why the kind of nuanced thinking really is sort of antithetical to what most people desire because, um, okay, I don't want to go off tangent here, but um, so there was this really popular article uh, based on the study coming out this week from Nature Magazine about how like serotonin, low levels of serotonin don't essentially cause depression, right? 
And then so the question was, whether it's true or not, is not really as relevant. The kind of major question is like, why do people buy into it, right? Why do people, why do people buy into an explanation that seemingly amongst mental health professionals has been pretty much like discouraged for like ages at this point? And the answer is really because people love simple explanations. So they love to say, oh, my depression is caused by low serotonin. I go to the doctor, the doctor gives me a pill, boom, I take it, I'm happy again, right? So, and I think it's the same thing when we're thinking about identity. So like, I can even imagine somebody listening to this show and asking themselves, wait, so they're against identity politics. Are they saying then that we shouldn't say that people are victims? Are they saying that LGBTQ people aren't victims? Are they saying that like, right, right. And and it's like, the question here is like, how do we- No, we're not saying that, right? And they try to box you in. Right, right, right. And then, okay, so so, I'm glad that you said that, right? So then the next question is going to be, okay, so if we are taking identity politics seriously, but not so seriously that we're getting trapped in it, what would that actually look like? So what would it look like to actually take seriously the, obviously the kind of, I, um, not just ideals, but the, uh, the sort of the needs of marginalized people, but then also say, okay, we're not getting so trapped in it where now we're sort of like, oh, kind of espousing corporate views and what politicians are saying and getting trapped in kind of what, you know, these kind of head honchos are doing to use us. I think you've just got to have a laser focus on practical material stuff, right? So, for example, after George Floyd, uh, there's a focus on reform of policing and certain things like banning chokeholds, for example, uh, more widespread use of cameras and so on, uh, getting rid of cash bail, you know, all different kinds of reforms that could happen and couldn't happen and whatever. Again, so, uh, some would argue that these things wouldn't make much difference. Some would argue that they go too far. But anyway, that's what the focus should be on rather than things such as abolish the police you know, or you know, right. stuff like that or slogans definitely instead of saying as the as the smithsonian briefly said you know certain things like the written word punctual time keeping underneath the family are all white concepts right which shows such massive ignorance of history uh you know it, it's, it's it's incredible right that they said that you know so focus on real practical concerns another example if you think of say lgbt people focus on stuff like marriage equality which okay you know, there's now the case in the US, maybe if, you, if Clarence Thomas gets it, so it gets its way, it won't be. But, you know, that's a kind of practical thing. Focus on stuff like uh, effective cheap treatment for HIV and stuff. Focus on um, things that are actually practical that people care about, you know, having full legal rights and stuff like that. Rather than focusing on this idea of the LGBT community, right, and who is and who isn't in it, and are you queer enough, or are you heteronormative and stuff like that. Which, you know, so... It's, uh, yeah, trying to have this real focus on how can we actually make someone lives better. Again, when it comes to these uh, more traditional white working class conservative voters, don't focus on, it's hard to tell, you know, conservative politicians not to do this because they're going to do it. But anyway, don't focus on issues like God and family and the Bible and stuff and the flag. That might get you votes. But actually do focus on stuff like, yeah, you know, uh, cheaper, more affordable health care. Uh, you know, better education, more steady, solid job opportunities, all that kind of stuff that might actually help people in the first place, rather than just you know, uh, continuing to drive these identity divisions. Right. So I think what you're saying is something akin to like, instead of uh, focusing on particular buzzwords, or I mean, I say this in jest, but I'm also kidding, uh, but teaching sort of children how they're kind of like white privilege all across the board, right? Influences bad and terrible behavior, right? What you're saying is let's try to figure out a way to make the material consequences of marginalized people or the material outcomes of marginalized people way sort of improve them, right? So we make them way better than they actually are because like these buzzwords and sort of having children take responsibility for things that they didn't necessarily do doesn't necessarily, doesn't move us forward as a society. 
Yeah, exactly. And we saw, you know, and, and the, the problem is that's really hard to do. That's really tough to right. do, right? Even if you didn't have a system like, say, in the US Senate, where, you know, you can have 50 seats and actually only like one third of the population votes for those 50 seats, uh, 50 senators, that kind of thing, where maybe you can have, say, or like the Supreme Court, for example, right? When only, I think, what, maybe 40% of Americans want abortion to be banned. And obviously, you know, the majority of the Supreme Court does so tough. Uh, it's it's now banned in certain states that want it to be banned. Instead of it's, it's tough to actually get this kind of huge change in the first place. Not, but it's made more difficult if, say, the left instead of talking about these issues, are they talking about these more de de divisive identity issues? And this is why I was saying about Joe Biden before. You know, Joe Biden made a concerted effort to do this with, uh, you know, this coronavirus uh, recovery bill and then the, uh, the the infrastructure bill passed last passed, passed last year. The ambitious but obviously ultimately um, failed uh, Build Back Better bill. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he tried to do this kind of stuff and he did try to speak in this kind of language. But unfortunately, a lot of Democrats like lower down the ballot, if you like, or, or you know, in Congress and uh, certainly at like a state level and, and so on, say the opposite. You know, they're focused on all these divisive identity issues. So it's really tough. And of course, the conservative right has absolutely no interest in having this kind of structural reform passed in the first place. So they're definitely not going to talk about that. I mean, they, again, as I said at the start, they'll, they'll adopt the language of class and talk about, you know, the downtrodden working class voter who, uh, you know, the Chinese or immigrants stole his job. But they're definitely not going to do anything to give this guy a better, you know, well-paying, steady job. Yeah. And even just thinking about it, like I can imagine somebody living in some downtrodden area, they can, yeah, I need like food and subsidies and I don't need you to acknowledge your privilege. Like that's not important to me. This isn't going to help me get through the day. Yeah. Oh, ex exactly. Exactly. And you know, a lot of this, so there's a, a, a writer in the UK called Rennie Edo Lodge. She wrote this mm -hmm. book, uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And again, in this, she says a lot, I do not need white liberals saying, oh, you know, we're so sorry, you know, that, that's performative. It helps no one but yourself. And obviously, she, you know, she's not a conservative. She's not a Trumpian Republican. Uh, you know, her book actually sold tons of copies after the murder of George Floyd. So she's quite uh, progressive, if you like, or radical on racial issues. But again, she says, yeah, white performative grief uh, and pointing out white privilege does absolutely nothing apart from maybe give a psychological boost to the person who's doing it sometimes. Uh, it doesn't change anything. Right. I love that. All right, Alan, final questions for David before we wrap up? Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter. That's DavidSwift87. So mm -hmm. you can find me there. And yeah, also I write for mostly UK-based publications, but uh, you know, trying to write for some more stuff in the US. And of course, you can buy my books, The Electra Itself, which was came out a few years ago, 2019, and The Identity Myth um, mm. online or potentially in bookstores. I'm not sure what the U.S. distribution is like. All right. Awesome, David. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I really, yeah, thanks really, so much for having me on. Really appreciate this conversation, man. We'll talk to you soon. Great. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. All right. So uh, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. We're at Seize underscore podcast like subscribe hit the bell the bell and thank you so much for watching see you next time